Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. Thanks very much. How are you? I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we're doing a follow-up episode to our series on the effect of COVID-19 upon shoulder surgery in the United States. We're talking today with several surgeons from around the country who are in different practice settings to get an idea of how various surgeons are transitioning back to normal as the virus continues to be present here. First, we have Grant Garagues, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at Windwest Orthopedics at Rush in Chicago. Grant, how are you? Great to be here, doing well. So tell us, um, Grant, you know, with all the changes with COVID and everything going on, how's your current operative volume? Is it up from usual because of the backlog of cases? Is it down from usual if things ramp up or is it pretty much status quo? I think it's, uh... It's a little bit down from usual, but much, much, much improved from, say, three to four weeks ago um, when we were doing only emergency cases. So I would, I would estimate we're about 85% of our volume. I think there was a bump initially. Um, we've gotten through that bump, and now we're seeing the effects of uh, all the uh, you know, disease you know, mitigation tactics we're putting into our clinics and our ORs that kind of decrease our throughput in both the clinic and the OR setting just a little bit. And Grant, are you are you back to doing everything you normally do, or are you just doing outpatient cases? Are you still doing inpatient cases? Are you doing revisions? Are you seeing more trauma, fewer replacements? Tell us, tell us, is the volume different than it normally is? Yeah, so we're seeing um, we're seeing everything. We are we are now allowed to see everything as Illinois is one of the states that has met the all the metrics for opening, um, and so we've now been allowed to do a purely elective surgery. Now the 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 profile of patients that we're seeing is very different. So I think a lot of the patients, I'm seeing more of the arthritic conditions, um, whereas before uh, some of the patients that were a little bit uh, more elderly were, were absolutely petrified to come to clinic. You know, now they are, um, they, their fears are alleviated by the fact that we're testing everyone, um, the temperature and everyone's wearing masks and gloves and they're kind of feeling more comfortable and, and frankly probably can't deal with uh, the pain any longer they've been sitting at home with. So. Uh, the arthritis portion has has come back uh, quickly. The thing that's not come back is the athletic injuries. So, I think the lack of organized sports that we're seeing here in Illinois, I've seen a lot fewer shoulder dislocations, acute labral tears, uh, Tommy John, uh, UCL type injuries. These kind of sport related injuries uh, have decreased substantially, and I think it's just due to the fact that organized sports is uh, not a thing right now. Organized sports as we um, progress through this COVID-19 pandemic and the new way of life, and you wonder, will we start to see newer types of injuries from athletes starting to cram in their seasons in shorter, more compact periods of time? We're going to see that a lot with the pro leagues coming up, and I'm sure that'll translate down to college and youth sports. So it's certainly interesting. Um, tell us, has your practice or has the group or has the university with regard to the hospital setting made accommodations to work through the backlog of cases? You know, when everyone's on shutdown, you have this list of people with planned elective essential surgeries that had to get delayed. What are those accommodations, if any? Are you operating on the weekends, at night, um, longer hours, et cetera? 
So uh, we did discuss that, and we did. Uh, I'm in a private IMIC model, so we have kind of different buttons to push and levers to pull. So on the private surgery center side, uh, there was some discussion of opening uh, weekend hours. We did not end up needing to do that, but we did have that option. On the uh, hospital academic medical center side, um, things, as you might imagine, move a little more slowly, and, and so that was not an option. So, you know, um, but it's been okay. Uh, I think, you know, the, the fact we hadn't seen patients in clinic for months, uh, you know, de would have decreased the volume we otherwise would have seen, but then the the backlog, and so it, it almost netted out to be a, essentially a, a close to normal or normal volume. So it wasn't like we had this bolus that was above and beyond uh, what one would have expected. Now, it sounds like your clinic was really shut down for a second. Are you back up to normal clinic volume, or is your clinic volume still down with the number of people that have lost their insurance due to the loss of their employment? Clinic volume is still down. There's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one is, as you described, um, you know, patients' employment, and, and frankly, even if they have an injury, you know, they don't want to go out on medical leave. They're concerned about their jobs. They're concerned they might, you know, be, be fired while they're away for medical reasons, which obviously is not allowed, but as we all know, happens unfortunately all the time. Also, the lack of sports that I mentioned, and then the main thing is we're, we're still uh, trying to be good stewards in our community. So we have everyone has decreased their clinic volume by 50 percent. And the idea there is we don't want crowded waiting rooms full of people. We measure everybody with a um, with a non-contact temperature scan, including the employees when they enter the building. Everyone wears masks. Obviously, we're wiping down the rooms and uh, between all patients. There's a lot of things that are very important as far as decreasing and eliminating the spread of COVID, but don't help your clinic uh, efficiency. So, and that's we we feel like that strikes the right balance between you know, giving the patients access to our important orthopedic services here in Chicago and the greater Chicago land area, but but also doing it in a responsible way where patients feel safe coming in and, and obviously we're not going to contribute to to the pandemic. Along those lines and in terms of maintaining safety, I'm sure your group, like so many others, adopted telehealth and virtual visits. What has been your virtual versus in-person mix and what strategies have you worked on to get those to mesh over not only the shutdown period, but now as you ramp back up and things become more normal, but you're still at 50% in-person uh, clinic appointments, how have you managed that? Yeah, it's, it's been a kind of a, um, there's been different phases to it. When we were totally shut down, by totally shut down, I mean, we only saw emergency or urgent patients. So that would be kind of immediate post-ops that had to be seen for some compelling reason or patients with a fracture, which was pretty minimal because not a lot of people were outside, right? Everyone was sheltering in place here. So we only saw, I don't know, uh, many uh, for many weeks, fewer than 10 patients a week. I mean, it was extremely light clinic schedule. We'd go in basically a half day a week. Conversely, during that time, telehealth took on a huge role. So we, our staff worked uh, tirelessly to get everybody um, transferred from our in-person schedule to our telehealth schedule, and we were able to see a lot of telehealth visits in a very short period of time, so many so that, you know, kind of our our internet and our wireless was sort of groaning under the, uh, you know, the bandwidth that we were using, but we were able to see a, a large number of telehealth patients that uh, we instituted that very rapidly and very efficiently. So, and then now that we're kind of vaccine patients, even though it's only 50%, we're still having a kind of one to two half days per week of telehealth but it's it's gone back a little bit. So we're trying to be careful about still only seeing the patients that have to be seen, 
and I think we've learned some things about who can be seen and managed successfully with telehealth. But I would say the importance of telehealth definitely peaked a few weeks ago when we didn't have the in-person option. It's a helpful adjunct. You can learn a lot. You can definitely kind of triage patients uh, through that. But there's so much that's lost in terms of the in-person interview, no physical exam, you know, no access to updated imaging. So, you know, it's it's a great thing to have. It's definitely going to be part of my practice long term. And it definitely has a role, but it does not in any way uh, replace the in-person uh, history and physical. Now, Grant, which which telehealth platform are you using? We use uh, we've been using Chiron Health. I think it's C H R I O N Chiron Health, um, and and it it seems to work well. You know, I, a lot of times it'll crash, but I think that's due to the the bandwidth of the patients often. You know, and some people are using them on their phone, which you know, they try to hold their arm away from them and kind of get a selfie to show the range of motion, right? Some people have like a laptop or a webcam and a really nice setup and they can just sort of back up and kind of show you what their range of motion and a better exam. But it, it all depends on the, it's limited on the, honestly, on the patient side, you know, what kind of technology they have, what access they have. So, and and then some some of our older, older patients um, that may not be quite as tech savvy or have that kind of latest, um, you know, web uh, capabilities, we, we end up just calling them because it's it's frustrating them. But the majority of patients uh, find it helpful, have appreciated that we have that service, and have enjoyed using it. The thing I think is interesting is patients have gotten a ton better at it. Um, even over the past couple of weeks, more and more patients have had a prior telehealth visit, and all of a sudden now they're familiar with the technology and how to get signed on and um, what, what what the whole, thing's, whole thing looks like. You mentioned it's going to be part of your practice long-term. Tell us a little bit about which patients you think are going to continue to be telehealth patients and which patients you've learned are not good telehealth patients? You know, I think um, so. things where you don't need imaging and don't need a physical exam, right? And the one that I find very helpful is imaging review. So we actually, um, you know, those are patients where I'd have them come back because typically those are off, those may often be a surgery discussion. So it's nice to have, you know, that that conversation with the patient where they can see you and you can see them and you can have a, re, a, a chance to re-examine them in some context in light of the imaging findings you've seen. So we, you know, we see someone, we've examined them and then we send them off for physical therapy and then say they fail that, we send them for imaging. So we'll often do that as a telehealth uh, follow-up. And then I can what we'll do is we'll actually turn the kind of web camera around and I can show them the imaging and kind of scroll through it just like I would in clinic. I'm, I'm pointing out things on the screen and, and, and turning my webcam around, which I think was a helpful sort of trick that we we learned and show the patients the imaging, but then also get a chance to re-examine them, um, you know, if there's any questions that come up during that. So the patients, you know, it, it they feel like they're having that face-to-face -face with a doctor, especially if we're having a surgery conversation. I think that's more helpful than, you know, over the phone and they can see their imaging. So I can show them where the tear is. I can show them, you know, where the, um, you know, where the glenoid erosion is or whatever it may be, um, but they don't have to be in, in clinic and, and take on that risk. So that's a big one. Other ones are, um, are appointments where, you know, a lot of times we'll see things like frozen shoulder or bursitis where we do an injection, uh, maybe some physical therapy and let some time go by. And we want to check in on them. We want them to feel like they're not abandoned or they're not a priority for us, you know, or we don't want them to feel like they're not a priority because we don't set up a follow-up, but often the expectation is that they'll have a full recovery. 
So I think that's a perfect role for telehealth to say, hey, listen, let's check in in six weeks uh, or, or 12 weeks and just see where you're at. If you're, um, if you're better, you know, great. Well, it'll be a quick conversation. If you're not better, we'll bring you in for, for another injection or, or perhaps advanced imaging. So I think for those scenarios where you, the expectations the patient will get better and that it would be almost kind of a wasted clinic visit, it's nice to do is telehealth. And if they need to come in, obviously you always have that option. Uh, so I think it's really interesting how telehealth is not new, but obviously very new for all of us who have adopted it because we're so used to being hands-on with our patients. And I, I couldn't agree more with some of the scenarios you mentioned in terms of utilizing telehealth moving forward, in particular, being able to share screens with MRI reviews. You know, previously I would just call the patient, but now you know, even through some of the software that we use, we can actually just share the screen and show them exactly what the MRI shows, where the tear is, et cetera. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think they find that uh, engaging and, and as if they're here when they don't necessarily need to be here. And especially as we prepare for potentially continued um, numbers of cases, if that happens um, and getting into the fall and flu season, uh, we may need to be very facile with telehealth, um, even as we're allowed to see in-person patients. So speaking of the next few months, what do you predict practice will look like for you over the next few months and heading into summer, potentially athletic seasons, and then into the fall? What is it going to look like for you? I think, you know, I alluded earlier uh, in the conversation to the organized sports situation. So a lot of it will depend on how that goes. Obviously, we cover pro sports teams as well, um, including the White Sox and Bulls. So it'll depend on how those sports seasons uh, for the, on the professional side as well as the amateur side open up. I think as far, for me, a lot of my patients here in Chicago, if you've ever lived in Chicago and Rachel, actually, I know you both have Peter and Rachel. So uh, you know that the, this is a really nice time of year here. Now we're in, um, we're in early June. And so, you know, the patients that have arthritic conditions, they say, that's great, doc. I definitely uh, know I need surgery. Give me an injection. Give me something to get me through golf season. <laughs> and then, you know, I'll have surgery in the fall. So this is typically for us kind of a, a time of year where we have a little bit of a lull anyway. Um, just because the weather is so nice here and people are wanting to get outside. I think with the quarantine, the shelter in place, et cetera, you're going to see even more of an effect of that where patients are just, they don't want to have six weeks of downtime in a sling when they're finally able to get out of their apartment, finally able to do stuff. So I think we're going to see a little bit of a, uh, a dip here uh, temporarily. And I think things will really um, pick up in the fall in the second half of the year. I think we'll be uh, at or above our levels because of that. Uh, that volume that's been kind of putting things off. Grant, it sounds like uh, you and uh, your partners at Midwest Orthopedics have learned a ton during this period about telehealth and about how to adjust clinic and operative schedules. And I, I know you're part of a very agile practice. What what advice would, would you have for our listeners about who are trying to succeed in this unusual time? Things you've learned that you say, God, that was really a critical Thing that we changed that I feel like has really helped us to determine how best to go forward um, in the in the time of coronavirus. I think um, that's that's great advice and uh, or that's, that's a great comment and thank you for saying that. I, I we tr we try to do a good job and I think we do a good job, but it certainly is not easy. I think we're all dealing with the same limited information and certainly in the early days of this pandemic, you know, the recommendations, the rules, essentially the laws on a state and federal level, we're changing on a week-to-week -week basis, sometimes a daily basis. So um, I think the bottom line is, you know, we get so kind of um, 
you know, we're kind of nose to the grindstone kind of people as surgeons. We like to put our head down and just do our work. Um, but when there's times like this where there's overarching kind of seismic shifts in, in how practice may unfold, that's time to take a step back, you know, do an information gathering phase. And then the most important thing that our practice has done really well, and credit to our executive team, uh, Brian Cole and Nick Verma, both ASCS members, as part of that, as well as our uh, administrative team, has been to just have really good communication. We've had so many more conference calls. I know everyone's kind of done with all the Zoom calls, but they're really important when you're talking about, you know, staffing decisions, how are you going to keep the practice afloat, you know, are you going to need to furlough people? These are important decisions. Everyone needs to be involved in these kind of discussions, and everyone appreciates being involved, and everyone has something to add, right, because they all have their own ideas. We're, we're all people that think about our practices in a, in a different way. So I think communication is key and uh, with each other, and then also having people that are just dedicated getting that latest information. Now we're kind of in a steady state a little bit here, it seems, for the past month, but in, those, in that first month, I mean, things were absolutely changing so rapidly. The rules, the SBA loans, the you know the projections on how th how bad things were going to get. So I think kind of taking a step back, you know, saying, listen, you know, this is not the time to kind of add more patients on the clinic. This is time to have another meeting. I know we hate meetings, but there's a time and place for them. And I think the early days of this pandemic and and going forward certainly was the time. Grant, thanks very much. I think, you know, one question, especially for our younger listeners and those either in their senior year of fellowship or in fellowship or even younger surgeons in practice, this is a significant time of uncertainty, especially for those looking for jobs, particularly in difficult to get into cities such as Chicago, Denver, et cetera. Um, and even those fellows or young faculty who are in jobs have secured them, they might not know their practice's future as practice has changed so much in such a rapid period of time. What advice do you have for people looking for jobs and those maybe who have signed a contract, but that contract might be a little bit uncertain now? And I know that's a loaded question, um, but you've recently, you know, switched jobs and um, you're well into practice, but still, you know, not 20, 30 years into practice. So I think you can relate to a lot of the fellows and younger surgeons, you might have some anxiety about this during this time period. Yeah, I think it's a great point, Rachel. I mean, I do get that. I've been doing this over 10 years, right? But I, but I did recently change practice. So I have the, you know, the benefit of kind of seeing rebuilding a practice in the last two years since I've been here in Chicago. And then also, um, you know, the, the, the benefit of kind of being out from fellowship for, for a bit. I do think that it's a very, very tough situation. And a lot of surgeons, especially kind of private practice and private emic systems across the country have called me because their employment arrangement has changed or the future of, you know, their their practice has darkened a little bit. And I guess what I would say is kind of going back to the communication thing, it's hard when you're not, I'm, I'm a partner at Midwest Orthopedics, I should say that at the outset. It's hard though when you're not a partner because you're not privy to all those internal conversations and you have to take a little bit on faith that people are are kind of spreading the pain around equally, all right? And, um, you know, here we, you know, the, the partners, um, you know, we've done that here. So everyone has kind of felt the brunt of this. And uh, and so, you know, that that is not an easy thing uh, to do. And I guess my advice back to your original question, Rachel, is that, a little bit of is is kind of you don't want to be naive, but you do want to not also fall into a panic mode. First of all, this is a terrible time to be looking for a job. So if you have a job now, 
I would just put your nose to the grindstone and try to try to um, get through this and try to just keep doing the excellent patient care that you've been doing. You know, keep treating people with respect as you've been doing because if you if you don't like your practice or you don't think your volumes are coming back, it's not going to be better. The grass is not going to be greener somewhere else right now. Now, if you think there are deep-seated problems with your practice and where you are, fine. Readdress that in a few months after we come on the other side of this. This is not the time, I think, to be looking for a job or having these kind of uh, existential questions about you and your practice. I think this is the time to kind of put your nose to the grindstone for a couple months and then look up and look around if you think there's there's issues that are fundamentally kind of a mess with your current work situation. Thanks so much. Definitely a difficult question to answer, and I, I think your answer was terrific. And for our young listeners out there, make sure to, to listen and pay attention because these are difficult times, especially for our younger surgeons. And I think Grant really highlighted nicely the current situation with regard to the job market and some of the difficulties, but also some of the positives when groups rally and come together and support their partners and, and junior partners and all that. So with that, um, I think we'll thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. We really appreciate your insight. Rachel and Pete, I want to say thank you for including me and also thank you for putting on this whole podcast series. This has been fantastic as a as a co-director of the uh, ASCS Technology Committee. I've been so excited to see what you guys have, have done with this and uh, excited to see what the future holds. Thanks again, Grant, for doing this with us. And again, we appreciate all your, all your insights. I can't tell you how, how valuable our listeners are going to find everything you just shared with us. Well, I hope so. I've enjoyed talking to you and have a great rest of the day. Take care. Bye. Take care. So on the podcast today, we have Dr. Charles Jobin, who's um, a shoulder level surgeon at Columbia University in New York City, where he's taken over the practice of uh, Louis Bigliani, and I know is a busy surgeon there working with um, Dr. Bill Levine. Charlie, how are you? Peter, I'm great. Thank you for having me tonight. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I'm sure that it's a hectic time for you, and we really appreciate your time. Give us a sense for how things are in New York City right now. Are you are you operating again? Are you have you have you reopened reopened or no? The city just reopened this week, um, and we've started elective cases starting this week as well. Uh, so we're just sort of uh, tiptoeing back uh, into the offices uh, more consistently and operating on elective uh, patients and cases. Um, so. It's been a long time shut down and a long time coming, so we're all pretty excited to get get uh, get the engine started and, and uh, do what we love to do. With the reopening this week, is your operative volume the same this week as it was before all this happened, or are you working in a somewhat restricted format this week? Definitely in a restricted format. So my operative volume maybe is 40% of what it normally is, um, and it is limited by a number of things. Part of it is uh, the number of patients we want coming through the outpatient surgery centers and or the hospital. So we're only running one room per surgeon. Um, other factors that come into play include COVID testing within 48 hours to so 72 hours uh, before surgery for all patients. And that has been a stumbling block for some where test results aren't ready by the time of surgery and have to be delayed or canceled or rescheduled. Um, and part of it is patients are, are frightened to come to the doctor's office or come to the hospital uh, because of the memory of, of 
sort of this epicenter of, of the pandemic in the United States, at least uh, in New York City. Um, so we're only at like 40% in terms of operative volume. Clinic volume definitely has grown. Uh, we're about 65% for our clinic volume. Has your hospital or has the department made accommodations to work through what, you know, we're assuming is a pretty big backlog, just given the shutdown and all the people, especially for, you know, essential, but also elective cases like shoulder arthroplasty, et cetera. Um, and if, if they've made accommodations, you know, have they, what are those? Are that you guys work in extended hours in the OR clinic working on the weekends? Um, what are things that were strategies that your department's employing, if any? Right. So we're, we're, we have a strategy for sort of uh, um, uh, identifying the, the cases that have the most need uh, to go sooner rather than later. Um, those problems that uh, impact quality of life, uh, pain, um, while they're still elective, have a high, sort of go higher on the queue. Um, they have extended hours um, in the OR, but they haven't, um, uh, they're, not, they're not overnight hours uh, operating. Um, there's still a, a, a big sense to, for, for safety and for, uh, worker safety, uh, like techs and, uh, OR staff to, to make sure that, uh, everyone's vigilant on PPE and, and, and personal safety. Now you mentioned the clinic volume is beginning to come back. Are you, what, what percentage of your clinic is, is virtual versus in person and do you have any tips for our listeners on how to manage kind of doing those those two things at the same time, the kind of balance of what's on the computer and what's in what what's in an exam room? Yeah, I mean, we have uh, we exploded in our virtual visit um, volume. Obviously, right in the in the height of the of the outbreak, uh, everything was virtual uh, unless it was emergent. Um, and uh, my sense has been that it's an extremely um, powerful tool. Uh, it's actually more efficient for the surgeon and more efficient for the patient. Um, there's ways to have the patient in a virtual waiting room, waiting for the orthopedic surgeon to get on the virtual call. Um, there's some strategies to either break up the day into halves and do half in person and half virtual, or to sort of sprinkle virtual visits throughout the day. Um, I've sort of been more of a fan to sprinkle. Uh, virtual visits throughout the day and accommodate people's time. Everyone's working from home or, or now getting back to work in person. Um, so offering hours that are good for people who are working is important. And in a virtual visit is extremely easy. Uh, so I've, I've, I've done over 70% of my visits have been virtual, uh, which is rather high in our department. We average about 35% of our clinic visits are, are virtual among the orthopedic department. Uh, and it, I think some surgeons are savvy with uh, the technical know-how to, 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 to use the virtual visit platform, while others feel like uh, it's frustrating when you have a failure to connect or uh, what have you. Uh, there's definitely something to be said where it's difficult to trust a physical exam that you obtain on a virtual visit. Um, and laying your hands on someone in person, uh, there's really no, there's no, there's no way to, 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 uh, do that virtually. 
So moving forward, what do you see in terms of which type of patients will you continue with virtual visits? You know, will you make this part of your post-op, you know, your first post-op visit, try to keep those patients out of clinic just due to clinic flow and, and social distancing? Or are there certain patient encounters that prior to the COVID pandemic, you know, we all saw in-persons all the time, um, now you think will be more routine as a virtual visit? Listen, I think most visits can be virtual. Even first post-op visits can be virtual. You can uh, give patients videos or YouTube videos on how to remove their own stitches, or you can use absorbable stitches. So many first post-op visits can be virtual. If anything, if there's any red flags on a virtual visit, then you would have an in-person visit rather quickly. Uh, other things like uh, fracture follow-up, fracture diagnosis, um, many things can be, can be dealt with in a virtual way. And honestly, it's, uh, it, it's very patient-friendly, and patients appreciate the, the fact that they can be at home working and, and five minutes later be discussing their, their issues with their doctor and get a resolution or an answer and move on with their life rather than spending three hours of the day headed to the office, waiting, seeing the doctor, and headed home. So it's, it's rather efficient. Um, it, uh, clinical um, sort of topics that are difficult to, to see virtually, like ruling out infection, um, uh, procedural injections, things where uh, obviously need to be done in person, uh, uh, required in-person visits. And what has been your, um, for telehealth, are you using a system that's web-based? Is it text-based? Um, have you used a couple of different systems? Are there, are there specific recommendations you might have for listeners for things that you work, think, systems you think work the best and are the most applicable to everyone? Uh, well, we just transitioned to Epic. And so Epic has a great uh, virtual visit uh, platform. Uh, but I also utilize Doximity, which has a HIPAA compliant um, video uh, conference tool as well as a phone call. Uh, and I will utilize both uh, on a patient who I'm having a difficulty making a connection with the Epic application. Oftentimes I'll call them. They'll have to walk through some of the IT issues or, or do a, a video visit through Doximity. Uh, but either way, we usually solve the, the uh, technical issues, um, even if it's spent, I spend an extra two or three minutes doing it. Uh, it ends up saving me time during the day uh, by connecting with them vi uh, virtually. Um, during the, the, the sort of the heat of the pandemic uh, or, or the outbreak in New York City, you know, some laws were changed where even FaceTime could be used, but I, I didn't actually use that. Just really stuck with the uh, HIPAA compliant uh, Doximity and uh, Epic platform. You know, obviously things have changed a lot in the last few months. Um, some, and if not most, have been unpredictable. If you had a crystal ball, Tell us, what do you think the next few months of your practice look like as, you know, we're in this COVID-19 pandemic? It's certainly not over. I don't know that it'll ever be over per se, but it's it's becoming part of our more new normal, so to speak. How do you think this will impact your practice over the next few months? And what do you see as happening um, if you had that crystal ball and could predict what things will look like? People are rushing to have their elective surgery now because there's a fear of the second wave in the fall or early winter. So I have a lot of patients who have been at home isolating, social distancing, and are rushing now to take care of it because there's the, there's the social perception that we're opening up and things are back to being as safe as it can be. Um, so I see a lot of patients who want immediate care and immediate surgery. 
which is good, but um, I don't have a crystal ball on, on if a second wave will come or if reopening itself will cause uh, increase the number of cases and uh, hospitalizations. You know, this has been a time of a great deal of change for everyone. Um, and I think it's been a time for everyone to reevaluate what they're doing and figure out how to reoptimize their practice, their workflow. I know, I know you're, you're a really thoughtful individual and I, um, I know you're part of a, a, of a department that's been particularly agile and dynamic. Tell us some things that you've learned that you think everyone else can take, take home. Like what are, what's advice do you have for people about, God, we worked through this and this was something that really worked in this new and unusual time. Things that uh, we optimized in our practice that worked were championing virtual visits, um, optimizing um, encounters with nurse practitioners, having for preoperative visits or preoperative counseling visits, optimizing uh, the first post-op visit to make it virtual and allow patients to take out their own stitches if they were young and, for example, had a, a sports injury. Um, those things uh, definitely were time savers and efficiency. Um, in terms of the social distancing within the office, uh, we definitely had to reduce the number of surgeons allowed at each office and reduce the number of patients in each waiting room. Um, and that, that was a difficult pill to swallow because uh, at some points we could only see you know, six or seven patients in, the, in, a, in a morning session, which is very low. Uh, and there just wasn't office space available for all of the surgeons in our practice to accommodate the reduced number of patients in the waiting room. You know, along those lines with, you know, things that are changing and advice and pearls and whatnot, um, one of the, I think, more difficult topics to, to talk about is what's happening with regard to senior senior residents and fellows and even younger surgeons in jobs where um, their contracts now may be different than what they thought due to this pandemic and the financial implications associated with it. What advice do you have for senior residents or fellows who are looking for jobs and for younger surgeons who may recently have gotten jobs, but their practice future may be uncertain? Um, certainly a difficult question. Uh, we're getting asked by our residents and fellows, what should we do? Um, and wondering your thoughts on this. Yeah, so uh, the world is unknown what's going to happen over the next year. Um, you've seen a lot of healthcare systems lose money. You've seen practices reduce salaries for surgeons. Uh, you've seen um, departments contract and, and uh, minimize staff and furlough staff. Uh, so I, I understand the perception and fear of the difficulty to find a job or change practice location um, because it, it's hard to market yourself as someone who's going to bring in a lot of business when business is suffering. Um, and so for that, for that younger generation or the generation that's looking for the new practice, I think uh, highlighting uh, the, your tech savviness and ability to, to get through and, and, and indicate patients for surgery with virtual visits is going to be uh, an asset uh, that, that 
an older generation is not going to be um, so savvy with. God, that's a, I think that's a great piece of advice for the young surgeon is to use that as a bargaining chip to say, I'm familiar with new technology. I can, um, I can help us to grow the business in a, in a new way that's particularly useful in the present time. So as always, Charlie, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your advice and your, um, your, your perspective and input here. I think we've had Reza join us on the line in the interim. Is a shoulder level surgeon at the University of Southern California and the Keck School of Medicine in Los Angeles. He's the assistant program director there and works both uh, there as well as at um, LA County. So we were hoping to get his his input on where things are at currently in Los Angeles. So tell us, Reza, how, how have you been? What's going on? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we didn't have as big of a problem as Charlie did in New York. We shut down quickly in LA and so we didn't have a surge, but everything went to basically zero and now we're just trying to get back on our feet i think it's been the second week now that we've been to about 75 percent capacity but the clinics have changed a lot we've been staggering our clinics so that some of us are in the morning some of us are in the afternoon to try to limit the number of patients that have been coming in so where yes. is your operative volume at now we're at about 75% right now. Um, every week we have been opening another room. So we started out a couple weeks ago with four rooms and we have just tried to increase it slowly so that we don't have a problem. The problem is we have, you know, obviously like everyone else, the COVID testing, we're testing all these patients preoperatively. So it makes it complex for the, for the scheduling wise. Um, we're gonna try to be closer to 90, 100% within the next two weeks. But the clinics are limited, and we're splitting up people just to get more people in and not overcrowd the area. Reza, are things different between the two different hospital systems when we talk about the USC hospital and LAC? Are things the same? Are there yeah. different policies with regard to COVID testing or how quickly things can ramp up? So at the county, I'm only there once a week, and they've shut down basically all surgery unless it's emergent. So essentially traumas. Traumas are only happening at county. On the private side, we're doing more elective stuff. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that there's anything that we're not really doing, but we're limiting the number of cases that we can do. So we're picking and choosing some of these patients. But the uh, county is completely different and they have shut down to a much lower level. They're probably at 50% or 25% capacity. The Keck side, private side is where I was speaking of. And I'm sure that during this off time, you've developed a little bit of a backlog. Have any accommodations been made to, to, to get through that backlog? Are you operating on the weekends? Are you operating at night? Or is it still very much shut down in terms of we'll get to that later? No, yeah, we're adding cases at off time. Uh, I'm not really coming on the weekends to doing it, but I will add a case or two after a clinic day just squeeze it in wherever I can and people are just trying to I mean our, our clinics are going longer than they usually do because we're staggering so we're, we're doing what we can and it's getting closer 
Well, yeah. So with your clinic volume, as you ramp it up, um, as it tries to get back to normal, um, are, are you still employing telehealth virtual visits? Uh, are you trying to get away from that or continue to incorporate that? And how is that working with your overall clinic in-person flow? So telehealth, we've realized is something that's here to stay. And so we're trying to incorporate it more and more mandated that we go through our clinic schedules and see which ones we can put to a telehealth visit, such as post-ops, MRI reviews. Obviously, we're trying to open up as much space for new patients as possible and certain follow-ups. But we are trying to incorporate the telehealth. It's not where we want it to. We still have glitches even with our system, so we're having to sometimes even call this patient and not do a formal telehealth visit versus just a telephone call. And you, we realize that it's here to stay. So we're going to do what we can to keep it here. Now, Reza, do you have any advice for listeners about how you're incorporating telehealth into your clinic flow? Are there certain visits? Are you, are you doing telehealth visits in the morning versus the afternoon? Are you intermixing them throughout the day? Are there certain platforms that have worked better or worse for you? Yeah, so we, we have been staggering providers. So that means that one week I'll be AM clinic, the next week I'll be a PM clinic. And so my telehealth has been mirroring that. So this today I had a PM clinic and they had some telehealth in the morning. And I don't know if we're going to try to just make it whatever the, the physician prefers in the future. That's probably what's going to happen. But right now it's based on what the schedule is for us. And that's all determined by our by our chairman. You know, it's really nice to, to hear from you and Charlie and also Grant that things are different. And I think most likely a lot of surgeons, I know I'm feeling this, I'm sure Pete is, and especially a lot of the younger surgeons who might have, you know, been getting into a great clinic flow with their practice and their volume. And then all of a sudden this pandemic hit, we, we have real, you know, real problems and real health concerns. And now we're trying to, to ramp back up, but things aren't normal. It can be frustrating. It's it's almost refreshing to hear that that some of the same challenges with restarting clinics and ORs are happening across the country, and we're all in this together. Um, Reza, what do you think, you know, if, if you could think about the next few months, because we, we really couldn't predict how this was going to play out for the last few months, what do you see as happening with your practice and your program over the next few months as this becomes our new normal and as we start to think about possibly a second peak or second wave uh, in conjunction with flu season in the fall. Um, what do you think is going to happen and, and what are you guys doing to prepare for that? So obviously we, we can't predict when the surge is going to happen, but we're acting like it's going to happen. And so we've implemented the whole social distancing protocol that everybody has in place to try to help with that. People are following all the rules and the, the main thing is I see that our clinics are returning to near normal. Surgery is coming to near normal. Uh, what we found is that these virtual meetings, Zoom meetings or conferences are something that we really like, and we probably are going to keep those going forward because it's just more convenient for a lot of people, especially in large programs, to have a journal club or whatever type of conference you're having. So that's something that came out of this as a silver lining and it's a positive and we're going to keep on with that. But hopefully, you know, the telemedicine, it has its, it has its limits as, as we all know. And so new patients and things, I'm not sure how useful it is for that. So it's going to be a, a portion of my practice, but hopefully a very small portion. 
Now, Reza, I know you interact with a lot of residents at uh, USC. And one thing I've wondered here, I mean, in, in a situation like this where everything is more shut down, the future is uncertain, what advice are you giving to senior residents and fellows as they go to look for jobs in practices that may be contracted? Or what advice would you give to people who've just taken jobs that may look very different now than they looked a year ago? in terms of how they can make the most or how can they how, how they can succeed in the future? Yeah, that's tough. So I, I would say, first of all, you, you know, you obviously want to choose a place that has a very secure foundation. You know, a lot of smaller practices are going under because they don't have the same backup as, as large institutions like yours or, or mine do. So take that into consideration, your security of your job. And in the beginning, you're going to be slow. So you want to really maximize all your paperwork and getting your forms in place and, and just concentrate on per, like perfecting your practice. And then going forward, a lot of the websites and ability to do search engine optimization, these are things that if you're, if you're a younger guy, hopefully you have access to text that can help you with your website and build up your, your virtual site. And, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I, I have no idea what's going to happen. So I, uh, I just, you can't worry about it. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it except just prepare. So be ready to have, you know, maybe you can make some handouts that you can use during your telemedicine visits, something that will help you and, and focus your attention initially on telemedicine because it's a new thing for them and it's a new thing for all of us but at least when you're starting out you can really focus on it and try to see how can i make this easier for me going forward Rez, i think that's such great advice to to focus on how to prepare for this i, I think your advice about handouts is great certainly we've seen a, res, a a huge focus on the web you know, which has been coming for a long time, but I think medicine has been slower, especially smaller practices to move in that direction. And I, um, I think your advice is just, uh, just spot on. Well, thank you. Yeah, for all of you guys joining us, we want to thank you. That's really all the time we have for this podcast today, but special thanks for sure to our guests, Grant, Charlie, and Reza. We also want to send well wishes to anyone impacted by COVID-19. We hope that everyone continues to stay as safe as possible. Keep washing your hands, keep practicing social distancing, and keep hanging in there. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe. And for Peter Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.